0: A cheese called basa, brandy made from foraged plums, and cooking under the bell. This week, we're in Croatia and Serbia. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast and website for foodies. At destinationeatdrink.com. Glad to have you here. This is the show where we explore the great cuisine of the world, and this time we're in the former Yugoslavia, Croatia specifically, with a little time spent in Serbia as well. My guest is Mary Novakovic. Mary is an author and travel writer for great publications like. Rough Guides, The Independent, The Guardian, and The Telegraph. Mary Novakovic's new book is My Family and Other Enemies, Life and Travels in Croatia's Hinterland. It's available for pre-order now. It'll be released on August 18th. I've got a link to her book in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash ded It's a great travel memoir about Mary's time in Croatia and Serbia from when she was a young girl to the present and her search for family connections that, in some cases, go back generations. Mary loves food, too, and that's one of the reasons I love her book. She talks about so much food in it, including great dishes and drinks she had in the Balkans, like a great Serbian cheese, savory pies, a delicious condiment called Ivar. Of course, since we're in the Balkans, we talk rakia and Turkish coffee. And now I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. welcome to destination eat drink it's great to have you on the podcast congratulations on your book my family and other enemies life and travels in Croatia's hinterland
1: thank you for having me
0: you know I wanted to start with something that's uh that I found really interesting you grew up in a Serbian household in Canada your parents were first generation immigrants from Yugoslavia tell me a little bit about growing up in uh, Canada and as uh, from an immigrant family, what was that like?
1: Well, we had a little Serbian bubble, and um, and because Canada, as you as you know, was so full of um, immigrant communities, where there was a Serbian bubble, there was a Croatian bubble, there was a Ukrainian bubble, there was a Polish bubble, there was a you know German, Austrian, um, absolutely Italian, obviously, and um, so everyone had their own communities, and they brought everything with them. So you had your church, you had your food. You had uh, community centres, you had dances, you had parties, you had all sorts of events going on, festivals. And so everyone had their own little community at the same time, being part of the Canadian community as well. But the funny thing is I had a lot of friends who, when they first tasted Serbian food and hospitality and way of life, ever wanted to come along.
0: We always <laughs> had
1: you know, Canadians coming and uh, coming around for dinner, coming to our festivals and our parties because everyone absolutely loved it.
0: This so much reminds me of growing up in Chicago, where you've got all of these different neighborhoods, and each neighborhood, it seemed, had its own enclave of immigrants, whether it was Italians, Ukrainians, less so Germans, but there's a lot of Germans in Chicago, especially Polish, and there's a big Serbian community as well. Um, What about growing up in a Serbian household? I imagine Serbian was the first language that you were speaking inside the house. Was that the case?
1: It was indeed, yes. I didn't actually speak English full time until I started school when I was about five. And that was the household um language. My grandmother never really learned English and she she had a tiny bit of it and sometimes she would understand a lot more than she ever let on. But uh,
0: <laughs> This is such a great strategy for folks, you know. Oh, I don't know.
1: What <laughs> totally. To- <laughs> Absolutely in fact, at times when my brothers and I wanted to say something she didn't we didn't want her to understand, we were then speaking French. And but it was uh, but yes, it was it was the language. But then as we as we grew older and spent more time in speaking English amongst English speaking people, the Serbian then sort of started to wane. So I would speak in English to my parents, still in Serbian to my grandmother, um, but English to amongst ourselves. And I have to say that's when my language skills started to deteriorate. Because I wasn't speaking it quite as often, and I never had very good grammar. I mean, I, I never, I never learnt the language; I just spoke it.
0: So, when you ended up going back to Serbia, was this uh, did this make it difficult, or were you able to communicate fairly easily with folks?
1: It was really hard. It was extremely hard. I spent the first couple of weeks; um, I couldn't understand half of what was being said said to me. And I couldn't make myself understood to people either. I hadn't realized quite how much English was in everyone's Serbian in Canada, including my grandmother, who couldn't speak English. Hmm. But she would she would say, you know, right? <laughs> you know and and Kadats uh, and 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 all these English words with Serbian accents, and it was absolutely hilarious. Unfortunately, that was a Serbian I took with me when I went to Yugoslavia in 1976. And that was, didn't get me very far. But as I said, after, you know, an entire summer, by the end of it, I was dreaming in Serbian, thinking in Serbian, and it was, it had become part of my brain. Unfortunately, it's, Gone back to how it was before. <laughs> it's not as, as nearly as good as it was, but it gets you by.
0: It's amazing how children can just absorb languages like that. And you were a, you were a child, a teenager, I think, or maybe a preteen when you went to uh, Yugoslavia for the first time. But I wanted to go back to Canada real quick because um, growing up in a Serbian speaking household would probably mean that you're cooking. Your mom and maybe your grandmother is cooking Serbian dishes. Mm-hmm. How did that manifest itself? Because you know, a lot of times with immigrants, they want to cook the dishes from the homeland, but maybe they can't find all of the ingredients that they had back home.
1: Well, that's why when you have a Serbian community, you then find all the ingredients because you find a Serbian grocery store, hmm. you find a Serbian butcher's. Perfect. And that, that's that's one of the that's such a massive m- important link with immigrant communities is through food, and I always had Serbian food growing up. My grandmother was mainly my grandmother um, because my, my mother was working because my parents split up when I was very young. And so my grandmother was the main cook in the house and we would she would just make everything from scratch because why wouldn't she? And occasionally when she would make what we call English food, it was it was almost like a treat. It was like, oh my God, hot dogs. We're having hot dogs for dinner. It? <laughs> it's such an unusual thing. Because normally we'd be having, you know, sardamah, which is, you know, stuffed cabbage rolls um, or stuffed peppers or, you know, version, our version of kebabs um, or version of, you know, the, the big, you know, Balkan burger. But she would make it with, um, cooked spinach and mashed potato. And I was one of the few kids who actually enjoyed eating spinach because of how my grandmother prepared it. And cevapcici as you must have had cevapcici at some point or another, um, the meat results and, uh, which are grilled major part of a Serbian barbecue and, um, and simple salads, very, very simple salads, you know, just cucumber salad or a white cabbage salad, very, you know, finely, very finely shredded cabbage. And that's what I'd grown up eating. And oh, also pita, which is like burek, but it's a different version of it, you know, filo pastry um, with with cheese and uh, and baked for a, for quite a while. Goulash that was another one we had, the Hungarian influence coming to Serbian food. Mm. Um, schnitzel, all all around Central and Eastern Europe, someone will have a schnitzel, and I had that growing up all the time, and uh, and that was um, that was our that was our diet pretty much.
0: Now your book is about reconnecting with family in all kinds of different ways. Um, and your family, you know, you're Serbian by heritage. You're an ethnic Serbian person, but your your family was in an area of Croatia. And, you know, I, I've talked about this before on the podcast. I talked about this uh, back when I wrote my book years ago. And uh, what people have trouble wrapping their minds around, especially Americans, is that when when we talk about this area that used to be called Yugoslavia— we now think of them as broken into individual countries. And when you draw these lines, it seems like, oh, everything is on one side is one thing and on the other side is the other thing. But that's not what it was in the former Yugoslavia. Can you kind of explain the region that, we're ta- that you're talking about in the book, where your family is from, and the unusual mixture of cultures and ethnicities that were there?
1: Yes, uh, the the region that my parents came from is called Lika, and it it, it borders um, Bosnia on its western side, and it's um, it's it's its history goes back um, quite a few centuries because it was the when it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it was it was a military um, frontier between the Austrians and the Ottoman Empire in in Bosnia, and they kept on having wars against each other, so they brought in all sorts of people to actually to be soldiers within this this um this buffer zone and they were called, they were from they were from uh, mainly Serbs actually from Bosnia or from Kosovo or from Montenegro who were in centuries of migration centuries of strife really I mean we had you know hundreds of years of the Ottoman Empire and there were constant wars between the Ottomans and the Austrians and all the cultures within there so you'd have um people constantly coming into the region to serve as soldiers and that's my the origins of my family. And as with every part of Europe, when you have strife, you have war, you have conflict, you have drought, you have all sorts of things going on, you have migration. And so you have different pockets of people living in all different parts of the country, not just Serbs going into Croatia, um, but you've got, you know, Croatians in Herzegovina and, and in Bosnia. And in you know, Bosnians in Montenegro, yeah, it's, it's and Bosnians and Montenegrins in, in Macedonia. Everyone ends up having to move because mm-hmm. they've, you know, we've had wars for many, many centuries. And yeah, so you'll find enclaves all over the place. You'll find, um, you'll find. In fact, one of the one of the biggest ones is one of the most multi ethnic regions of the country is Vojvodina in northern Serbia. And that has about eight different um, <laughs> uh, regions. You know, people again. That goes back to the Austro-Hungarian Empire when you had the Czechs, you had Slovaks, you had Hungarians, and uh, you had um, Ruthenians, you had Ukrainians, you had all sorts of people in there.
0: Of course, uh, my favorite parts of your book are about food, and the uh, there's so much great food in your book, Mary. But the place I want to start is the thing that struck me is no matter where you travel in this book, and you went to many, many different places, little villages, places totally off the beaten path. These are not places where tourists would normally go, but everywhere you went, you were um, given this incredible hospitality from folks, even from folks who had very, very little. Um you were insisted to sit down and and have a meal. Can you talk a little bit about Serbian hospitality in general and some of how you experienced it specifically while you were traveling?
1: Yes, the first thing that you that you find when you go into a Serbian household or a Croatian household or a Slovenian household is are you hungry? Sit down, eat, have a drink, have some coffee have uh, have a glass of brandy. It's an immediate thing it, it, it's 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 an instinctive thing and and it's very very rare that somebody actually doesn't invite you in and and i i was um but one of the funniest uh situations was i was in my my father's old village and we were trying to find the hamlet that he would actually was born in and we tried the first house in the village and we just walked in it was my my mother and my uh and my aunt my uncle and and we just sort of poked our head round 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 the kitchen door and and uh, said, you know, hello, hello. And they said, Oh, come in, come in, sit down, have <laughs> a drink, have some coffee. Do you want some lunch? <laughs> and and they, they, they They had no idea who we were. We'd never met them before either. And and we all just sort of sat down and introduced ourselves and shook hands, and they brought out the Schwiboviza, you know, the plum brandy, and and um and pouring it and drinking and making coffee for us and having a nice chat. And they had no idea what where my father's hamlet was, but we were there for about 45 minutes just nattering away and having a good gossip. And uh, and that was a, a typical thing. I think if they're this friendly when they have just met you, what are they like when they get to know you? Right. And but but then another time was was actually really quite um quite quite poignant in a way. It was we were trying to find my my great-grandfather's grave and we were being sent on you know uh, being we asked one person after another said oh we don't know but the old man up the hill will know. So we just went from house to house. We finally got to the last one, which ended up being, um, people who, uh, I'd seen a lot of poverty in the region, but I hadn't seen people who were quite so everything about them. They, their clothes were in rags. They, they were wearing broken slippers. They just looked so pitiful. And, and my heart went out to them. And, and they, we were asking, you know, where my great grandmother's, uh, great grandfather's grave would be and they immediately said oh please have, have 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 um come and have a coffee or you know can we can we offer you something and and they had, they had nothing and mm. um and then and then my and then my mother said you know and, and they also didn't know who my great grandmother's grave was and as it turned out we had um they knew people in in canada and my, and my mother was godmother to um their cousins children wow and we i know i know and uh, but we my, my mother essentially like uh, eventually I thought well, maybe we can buy some eggs from them because they have chickens in the in the in the yard, and um and she wouldn't take any money for, for the for the eggs, and then she insisted on giving a a chunk of ham as well. And I said, no, oh, please don't. And we just felt so guilty, and they would not let us leave. They actually shoved it into our hands and said, please, please take this, and it was. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to do. But and everywhere we went, I mean, we'd, we would give they'd be giving us so much food to take with us. They had they had so little, but they had a lot of food um, and they were just they just wanted to to be kind and to be generous. And even if they had next to nothing, they would still give what they had.
0: It's an amazing story, Mary. Um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk mm-hmm. about uh, foraging. Because foraging is a is a topic I'm always interested in. In my town here in Portugal, um, I was talking the other day with a friend about uh, the fruit trees here. And there's a particular fruit. I think it's called uh, commonly called loquat, but uh, we call them here in Portugal nespera. And these things are just heavy with fruit everywhere. And I've been trying to pick as many of these as I can. The fennel has been the wild fennel on my little walk up to the fort has been everywhere. And there's just the most wonderful herbs and fruit. And so when I was reading your book, I was just thinking, it's so cool how they're uh, foraging for things also in Serbia. I mean, of course, this happens all over the world, but I felt a real connection to this because I love foraging myself. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that they forage, like the plums and the herbs?
1: Yes, of course. Yes. I mean, if, if something is growing, there's no reason why you can't help yourself to it when it's just growing there in the wild. And you have a, you have an awful lot of fruit trees and a lot of areas where, um, the people have, have, have emigrated and, but they've left behind orchards that still have got loads of fruit, groaning with fruit. And so, and, but every would, have, everyone would have their own orchards anyway. But you would go into the forest, you'd be picking wild herbs, um, thyme, sage, whatever was growing. Um, in fact, you'd, you know, chamomile and rose hips, you'd, you would mm. pick those as well. because then People love herbal tea and, um, rosemary, all of that. And, um, mushrooms when mushroom season comes around and, uh, and just really whatever, whatever's growing. There's no reason why <laughs> a lot of people in Britain are a little bit, um, you know, they walk they're, apart from picking blackberries and hedgerows and and slowberries to make, you know, usually soy gin. Hmm. A lot of them are a little bit fearful of just picking strange you know, fruit that is growing wild. and I have no idea why. <laughs> And uh, the, and because some of this it, is the loveliest fruit. Uh, there's a lot of wild strawberries that you've going to find in forests.
0: Do they think they're going to get in trouble, maybe, or they think I'm going to get poisoned if I eat something that uh, that I'm not familiar with? I wonder because I think what? there's kind of the same idea in in the U.S. Maybe in all of North America, this idea. Oh, I don't know if I should touch that or not.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you find that you find that in Britain a lot. And, uh, whereas in, in, you know, the countries of the former Yugoslavia, you know, Croatia, Serbia, where everyone, if it's, if it's there and, it, and it's knees eating, then why not help yourself? Unless you're, you you do not obviously encroach on somebody else's land and help yourself to their, to their food. Um, unless you're invited, because there's so much of it to go around. <laughs> <laughs>
0: My brother who lives in Los Angeles was telling me there's uh so, so this is to me very funny and very uh, a modern way of dealing with this issue. There's a website where you can go and um, people have pin marked locations where there are trees that are either free or they're on people's property and they're willing to barter with you for different stuff. And it's like <laughs> for, for, a thousand years people didn't think about this they just went and picked what was out there now we have a website to tell us exactly where to go and to uh, and to get your oranges or whatever that you want to get in los angeles
1: yes i think we sort of moved ourselves in the wrong direction when it comes to food
0: i want to talk to you about not a a dish but a cooking method um and it's called. Uh, I'm gonna. am I'm gonna say the English version of this, and you can tell me how to pronounce it in Serbian. But what does it mean to cook under the bell, Mary?
1: Well, a bell. Well, it, it's it's a, called a peka. It's a it's a it's a cooking vessel, and it has a, like a dome shaped lid. And when you call, when you cook something ispod peka, it's under under the bell under the peka. And it's a cast iron dish. And it's essentially, it's it's a mini oven. You make yourself a, your own oven in, in places where you never had your own range. You have to, you know, use uh, charcoal all the time. And you'd, you'd put um, huge chunks of meat. You'd have veal or you'd have lamb. Um, in some places, octopus, um, pork. You put huge chunks of it and then surround that with potatoes um, carrots, celery, whatever vegetables you had and put liquid in it, put the, um, the pecker, the lid on and around it is a, a metal frame and that holds all the embers, all the charcoal embers that are burning away on on top of the lid. So you've oh. got the heat coming from the top and then it sits on top, then the whole pot then sits on glowing embers as well. So essentially you've got heat from the top and the bottom. And that then cooks for several hours. And when you take off the lid, you have the most succulent meat imaginable. It's just beautiful. And all of the, the veg cooking with it slowly, as with any other stew, has absorbed all the flavors. And there's nothing added to it apart from seasoning. It's, it's just the simplest thing. But because it's been cooking for so long in its own juices with the, with the heat coming from the top, it's just a beautiful way of of cooking meat. It's just absolutely gorgeous
0: so this to me sounds uh at least the vessel itself sounds similar to maybe a uh, tangine in in the fact that it's kind of a dome shaped vessel, but the cooking method is different because you've got the embers that are completely surrounding this uh this this bell that you've got that's fascinating
1: mm-hmm. yes, it is as I said you have you have the the embers sitting on top and then you have the and and then they're actually the whole Potter sitting on, on the fire as well.
0: One of my favorite things traveling through the former Yugoslavia is the uh, red pepper sauce, the ajvar. Ajvar. Um,
1: Avar. Ajvar. <laughs> yes. Ajvar. Yes.
0: <laughs> and uh, tell me about the. Share this with our audience as to what this is and how you would how you would eat it.
1: Uh, Ivar is one of the best things on the planet. It's found throughout all the Balkan region, Uh, Macedonia. In fact, the Macedonians are major, major producers of it. And it's come September, the entire region has a glut of red peppers because everyone grows red peppers because they are a major part of of the regional cuisine. And the way of preserving it, as you preserve all food, is that you then you roast them, you skin them, and then you turn that into this relish this um this um condiment ibar and you add you add garlic and sometimes you actually you add um aubergines as well some some have it some some haven't yes and it's just a staple it's a staple it's a staple condiment you have it with all sorts of things um you could have it with with cheese you could have it with um you know have it um scoop it with with bread you could you could have it uh with meat when, whenever we have a barbecue we always have a jar of ibar and we have that to go with the roast lamb that we're having. And um and if you're having, you know, the cold meat the next day, you have it with that. And it's just a it's a lovely, lovely flavour. You could have it in different different um different levels of heat as well. You can have it very, very spicy, you just have it mildly spicy. When when I was a child I couldn't I didn't it was too spicy for me because I had absolutely no no <laughs> threshold at all for no no, no tolerance for for heat now of course i get the hottest one you can you can get and i absolutely love it
0: delicious i i love it like with a plate of just cut raw veggies and a little bit of bread and maybe some cheese on the side talk a little bit about the the cheese that's available in serbia because i'm always looking for the local cheese i'm right now discovering all the great portuguese cheeses but tell me about some of the serbian cheeses that we could enjoy.
1: Well, the cheese that we had in, in, in Croatia, in leek, um, some of them actually you might, you might, you might find familiar because you have a lot of hard cheese either made from sheep's milk or, or from goat's milk and from cow's milk as well. Similar sort of ones that you would get in Portugal. Um, but the, one of the simplest ones that we have is called basa, which is essentially just, uh, milk and sour cream and salt. And you, you, you boil that. You then wrap it up in muslin and you let the whey drip. And you, once all, once all the whey is drained, you then set it, you just put it in the fridge, you just keep it cold. And then it, it's just really simple, but very creamy. And it's just the loveliest flavour. And again, you, you spread that on things and, and, uh, and that's a, a wonderful way of using up, again, because using up milk, cows that you have to milk every single day. And you have that fresh cheese all the time.
0: One of the things you talk about in your book are these savory pies made with phyllo dough called uh, gibanitsa, I think is how you pronounce it. Maybe I'm close, maybe I'm not. But anyway, uh, could you <laughs> tell me a little bit about this uh, this dish? It sounds delightful.
1: It's called gibanitsa. Gibanitsa. And uh, gibanitsa is a hard G. And it's, uh, it's another, another way of using up phyllo pastry, which we're, we're very, very fond of in the Balkans. It's uh, essentially you you scrunch up sheets of, of phyllo pastry into a mixture of uh, of soft cheese and and eggs and and um fizzy water not still water and salt and you scrunch it up in, in in the in the mixture and then you you put it into a pot and then you pour over the the remaining liquid and then you bake it so it comes out in sort of these savory leaves smothered in cheese and and uh, and it's it's absolutely lovely it's it's a it's a very simple thing to make but it's, again, it's, a, it's another staple dish because we, we do love feel in, in the Balkans. It's absolutely everywhere.
0: Would you eat this as a handheld dish or would it be with a knife and fork? Is it more rustic than that?
1: This one would be a knife and fork because it, does, it doesn't, it. Um, does it's not like a, a like a burek pie, for example, um, which, which you, you can eat, I, eat, I normally eat, eat, eat with my hands, but um, normally it would be knife and fork and a, and a bit of salad on the side.
0: You talked a little bit in your book about the Turkish influence in Serbia, Croatia, the former Yugoslavia. And I was kind of surprised to read how much uh, meza you were eating, the Turkish spread of meat, cheese and veggies, because I've talked to Turkish friends and they talk about that all the time. But I was I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was a little bit surprised that you were that you were eating this so often. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, it's, it's a, it's a staple meal because especially if you've got people dropping by and, and, and you, and you have whatever's in the house and you will always have in the house, you have cured meats and you'll have, you know, cheese, chunks of cheese and you'll have salad, you have vegetables that you can then all just put together and, and bread. And, and that's your meal. A lot of, um, Serbs and Croats will have a major lunch, have a big lunch, and then they'll have a, a lighter dinner. And so a meza is is perfect for that because you just want a little bit of a snack to take the edge off. But then you would have had a big big lunch, and quite often lunch is quite late in the afternoon. So you'll be eating a big meal like three four o'clock. So by the time eight o'clock comes around, you'll just you'll just want to snack on things.
0: You also talked about Turkish coffee. Is is that the well? First of all, describe to me what uh, what coffee is like in Serbia and the former Yugoslavia. Um, we're talking about Turkish coffee, so describe that specifically, and um, is that the main dominant kind of coffee that you would get in Serbia?
1: Um, well, Serbia is a different thing from uh, different society, different um, sort of um, region from from the, the Serbian part of Croatia that my family's from, mm-hmm. and because throughout Serbia you'll find Turkish coffee all all over Croatia, not quite so much because it's very much of a of a of a Serbian thing. Oh, having said that. Croatians love Turkish coffee, um, but a lot of them, will, 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 they'd rather have an espresso, for example.
0: Yeah, I remember drinking espresso mostly in uh, in Croatia myself. Yeah. But I wasn't looking for Turkish coffee, so it may well have been there and I just missed it.
1: Well, they would call it um, domaca coffee, as in domestic coffee. And uh, and you find it in Bosnia, Bosnia, absolutely everywhere. And it's, it's very, very finely ground coffee, but what you do is you, you cook it. You don't put it, you don't put, uh, put it through a filter. You actually, you, you, you cook it on the, on the, on the stovetop and until it starts to boil and you, you, you're stirring it and, uh, and you let it settle for a bit and then, then you pour it. So it's very, very, very strong. And uh, and quite bitter, and you have to stop drinking it to the point where just before the grounds start to turn up in the bottom, it's it's very it's 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 very similar, to, in fact, pretty much the same thing as Greek coffee. I don't know if you've ever had Greek coffee, um, but it's that same sort of thing. So it does give you a massive kick, and and it, and that's just what fuels the Balkans.
0: I loved I love the Turkish coffee, and mm-hmm. I always give the advice. Don't gulp it down. It's not espresso. You don't do it in one shot because then you wind up with a mouthful of coffee grounds in, in your uh, in your throat, which is not a pleasant experience. But Turkish coffee is wonderful, and it's something uh, everyone should try. Now that we know that we can find it in uh, the former Yugoslavia, I'll have to uh, do it on my next trip there. Um, speaking of drinks, you mentioned a little bit the uh, the plum brandy. It seems everywhere you go in the Balkans they've got uh, they've got different kinds of brandy, plum brandy, and whatnot. Um, talk a little bit about that and about uh, you know uh, where you would have it and uh, how people offer it to you and whatnot
1: well in a in a country in a region where fruit trees are absolutely everywhere, you have to make things with the fruit, and one of them is brandy so you'll have plum brandy um, and you'll have uh, grapes as well, which is what well, which is um Rather like Grappa, no version of it. You'll have walnut brandy. Lots of walnut trees everywhere, and you'll have um, you'll have quince, you'll have cherry. Uh, pretty much every every fruit that grows, you'll make a brandy out of it. And it's a lot of it. Obviously, it's all it's all made at home, <laughs> which means it'll be a lot stronger than the sort of stuff that you're buying in the shops. Yeah, yeah. Fire and water. It's, 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 yeah, absolutely. And you you sort of get used to it. I've been drinking all my, well, most <laughs> most of my life. And it's, uh, you have, certain, you know, smoother versions of it. One of my cousins left his to, uh, to, um, mature for about 12 years and it was absolutely wonderful. And it's drunk at pretty much any occasion. Um, you I, people offer it for breakfast at times. I've been offered, bre- you know, a breakfast brandy and sometimes I, actually I don't, very, very, very rarely I'll have a breakfast brandy. Um, but you have it, uh, when, when you go into a house, would you like a, a shot of rakia? Um, and or at lunch or before lunch or after lunch and before dinner and after dinner. And it's pretty much drunk anytime you have a coffee <laughs> most of the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cor- corrected coffee. We, we called it in, uh, in Italy, coffee, correct. Yep. Um, Actually,
1: no, it, it, you wouldn't have it in the coffee necessarily. Oh, oh a shot next have, to no, it. Oh, okay. Next to it, beside it. It's absolutely. Yes. And uh, the same way that you'd have, you'd have, you'd have a grappa and then you have an espresso. And we also have what we call, um, well, we, we call it hot tea, but it's actually Schlievovitsa that's been um, brought, cooked with sugar. And it's like a hot toddy in a way. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's a lovely thing to have on a, on a cold day.
0: So tell me, the, the Schlievovitsa, I thought it was just the plum brandy itself, but you're saying it's a it's a method of having it?
1: No, no, no. Schlievovitsa is plum brandy.
0: Okay, that is the plum brandy. And yeah. you also talk about the rakia. And so, when you say rakia, do we mean all of the all of the brandies encompassing yes. all the different things? And then, yeah. slivovica is the plum brandy specifically.
1: That's right. Yes.
0: Okay. Good. Good to understand. I I love the rakia <laughs> when I'm in uh, when I'm in the Balkans. The uh, let me see. The juniper. Oh, love the juniper one. Of course, the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the plum is delicious, but there's all different kinds of rakia. Like you said, you can make it out of pretty much anything, anything that, uh, that uh, has a fruit, fruiting body on it, you can make a, a rakija out of. Um, you talked about a Serbian brandy, a specific Serbian brandy, uh, Vinjak, I think is what it Vinjak. is. Vinjak.
1: Vinjak. Vinjak, yes,
0: and yes. Tell me about this and enjoying this, uh, this drink.
1: Well, that's a, a pretty much like cognac. It's the same, it's the same method as cognac. They just call it vignac. And, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a warmer flavour. Actually, well, almost the brandies are warm, but that one, it does have that very, very strong cognac taste. And, uh, and it's, it, you just, again, you, you have it the same way as have all, all the uh, all the other brandies.
0: Well, Mary, it's great to have you on the show. It's great, Ben, talking to you about your new book. Um, congratulations on My Family and Other Enemies. Best of luck with that. And thanks so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been very, very enjoyable.
0: Okay, there you go. Great stories from Mary. And there's a link to her book, My Family and Other Enemies, Life and Travels in Croatia's Hinterland in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED193. And I got to say, I've read Mary's book cover to cover. It really conveys the feelings of a specific kind of travel, not necessarily tourist travel, but when you're traveling in search of something, or especially when you're traveling and staying with family, it's so different than the normal kind of travel that we do. And Mary captures it so nicely. Well, that's it for this week. If you like the show, be sure to rate and review us. It's easy to do. It'll make me very happy, too. Next week, don't miss the show. We'll be exploring Portugal's craft beer boom. Until then, I'm at DestinationEatDrink.com 24-7. Check out my latest story about vegan pastel de nata. Yes, you can make the famous Portuguese custard tart vegan. Read about that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and plum brandy bootlegger Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.